Hi, I'm Annie, and I'm here with my best friend and wonderful co-host, Anna. And we are very excited to be back for yet another episode of The Other Half. So since we've last spoke, I have had a change of profession, and I am now the Senior Research Manager for the National Women's Business Council here in Washington, D.C. Congratulations, Annie. What an exciting new position. That's so great. Thank you. I'm I'm coming to you from the same old job. I'm still, <laughs> still an assistant professor of <laughs> mathematics at Duquesne University, coming to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Home of? Home of a beautiful tree outside my apartment that just started to blossom yesterday. And it's bright pink and it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, That's, it's, it's really nice. It's, actually, what am I saying? You're in DC. You guys are like... In, home of the cherry blossoms galore. Home, is of, it, home of the commodified cherry blossom. <laughs> is it game on right now? It is totally game on. It might. We ha- I have cherry blossoms right outside my window, as a matter of fact. And everywhere I walk, people are hustling amidst the cherry blossoms and magnolias. It's it's actually quite lovely. Wow, that's early though, no? It's super early. I, I think that like the height of cherry blossom season isn't for another month by the like hotel calendars, mm-hmm. and so um, I'm sure that there are some internal panic attacks that the people yeah. around me are having. I'm like, the, I'm like the world's most boring person. Short winter this year, eh? No. <laughs> Which leads Spring's us... Spring's a-coming. <laughs> leads us beautifully into today's topic. Thank you, Anna, for that slide right in. We're not just trying to be horrible by talking about the weather. This is actually kind of a... An entree into the thing we wanted to talk about today, which turns out is, you know, the weather. Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, weather is actually a very rich topic, mathematically speaking. And there are a couple of ways that math shows up in weather forecasting. So first, there's the mathematics of dealing with weather data to create forecasts. So that's like the mathematics of modeling. And then... You know, once you create a model, you have to interpret it, which is its own brand of mathematics and is increasingly not the same as simply reporting the outcome of a model. So there's something that needs to be done with the data that comes from running multiple models. And we're going to get into that in a minute. So to be to just to be very clear here, when you're talking about mathematical modeling, you're talking about like building up big, fancy, multi-tiered equations that take weather data as input and give some kind of prediction as an output. But a mathematical model is like a big, fancy, heavy-duty equation, right? One or multiple equations, right? You might need to actually like retrieve the outcome from a series of equations. And then even potentially, as you point out with that phrase, multi-tiered, you might even need to like take that outcome and plug it into a new equation, right? So... It's building something that allows you to put in inputs and kind of churn out outputs. It's not the first time that we've talked about machines and like putting in inputs and cranking a lever. And And cranking things out. This is exactly the image I have in my head, though. A big fancy machine where you put a little ball of weather data in one side and you like crank, 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 crank. And then like 
a weather prediction comes out the other side. Exactly. And then I guess you have to do like statistical analysis and probabilistic analysis and this kind of stuff on what comes out. Right. But no, but you're exactly right. So like you deal with the outputs in a particular way. So maybe you have more than one output and you need to figure out how to reconcile the various outcomes. And then you can also say, all right, based on what I have reason to believe is true, how good a job did these outputs do at actually predicting the true outcome so like that's that and that's its own version of mathematical insight into weather so let's back it up a little bit can you tell me a little bit more about how you build these models because i'm guessing you're trying to somehow like model nature or like the environment or something but how do you actually build a model and get predictions from it i myself am no expert But I did have the good fortune to speak with somebody whose research centers around just this. I will let her introduce herself to you. Hi, I'm Hannah Christensen, and I am an atmospheric scientist in the Department of Physics at the University of Oxford. Hannah penned an article a little bit over a year ago for The Guardian, in which she laid out the basics of the work that she does. And and this is how I found her. I read this article. And in it, she explains that the critical starting point for understanding weather forecasting is this, this kind of simple idea. Weather is fundamentally about the interaction of molecules in the atmosphere. And the molecules are all around us. But it would be a complete fool's errand to try to describe this interaction by accounting for the motion of each individual molecule, right? I mean, there are just too many of them. What's bigger than billions? Even more. So we have to aggregate these molecules in such a way that we're still treating the atmosphere as though it were a group of discrete points, but not such an unwieldy number of them. And in order to do that, we think of the atmosphere as a series of kind of skyscrapers of air that cover certain areas of ground. So for instance, imagine a five by five mile square of ground, so it's 25 square miles, and extend that up into the air a few miles vertically. And all the molecules found in that big box would be treated as one single point of the atmosphere. And we would describe that one single point of the atmosphere as having one temperature, one humidity level, one wind speed, does that make sense? Uh, yeah, so this makes sense. You're taking like a five by five plot of land and calling that one molecule essentially. So you can you can like plot out a whole county that way really quickly. But the thing that doesn't quite make sense to me is over five by five miles, over a chunk of land that big, you've got like different weather patterns going on. Like five miles from here is you know, maybe there's a mountain between us or a river and you must be losing some information about weather systems, right? That's exactly right. You've totally got it. By breaking up the atmosphere into these boxes, you're bringing kind of imprecision and uncertainty into whatever model you're using to describe these points. 
And Hannah has something to say about that too. So there's um, there's kind of two main sources of uncertainty in a weather forecast. And so the one you've described is the one that I work in, certainly. So uh, we tend to call that model uncertainty. Um, and so exactly as you've described, um, this is the uncertainty that arises because we're trying to make a prediction of the future using a race, a kind of simplified computer model. And yeah, and so we have, especially small scale processes, we can't compute exactly what, what's going to happen. So things like clouds and things like mountain ranges as well. I suppose if you mm-hmm. think um, if you think that you're representing this say, 10 by 10 kilometer box by a single point, then you're going to have a lot of kind of varying topography going on in in that box, which you which you don't represent in terms of your how high your ground is. So you, you have to represent how the flow interacts with that in a very kind of turbulent way in, in a, one of these schemes as well. You don't just have to kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, well, we have this model uncertainty and that's the best we can do. It'll just have to be an imprecise model. And that's exactly where Hannah's work lies in the effort to account for what happens at the small scale and how that affects the bigger weather picture. And she does this through parametrization schemes. So as she put it in last year's article in The Guardian, Instead of trying to do the impossible and predict exactly what the weather will be next Tuesday with 100% accuracy, wouldn't it be more useful if we accepted our limitations and instead produced a probabilistic forecast for the weather next week? Okay, so this means that instead of pinpointing exactly what's going to be happening in this 5 by 5 chunk of land, because let's be real, that's very, very hard because as we said, like all, all, all kinds of things happen. This is like saying, let's think about all those things and maybe weigh out the different likelihood of each of those things happening and somehow account for all the things that could be happening in this small range. Yeah, that's right. And Hannah, in particular, in order to do this, uses kind of a starting point that is determined by random numbers. This is called stochastic parametrization. And through using these random numbers is able to model the uncertainty. And by doing that over and over, by taking different starting points over and over and over and seeing how the weather plays out into the future, is able to assess the series of possible outcomes probabilistically and kind of looking at them as a set of possible outcomes, as opposed to just running a model one time and using a single forecast to say, yes, this is what we predict will happen next Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're saying, like, looking at this small plot of land, you can say, like, one of these things is going to happen, right? Either we have, like, a bunch of clouds or no clouds. And each of those eventualities you can kind of account for in your model, right? You can say, like, here's what happens if that condition is met and here's what happens if that condition is met. So then whatever it actually ends up looking like today, you've run a model where you've accounted for that. The one where there are no clouds, the one where there are clouds. Right. So you've like any possible starting scenario, you've like run to completion to see what what would happen in that piece of the multiverse or whatever. That's exactly right. But there's like one additional catch. There are some limitations to even understanding what your actual starting point is. So 
that kind of that stems from the idea that we only have um, fairly limited observations of the current state of the atmosphere. So in part, these come from uh, satellite measurements, um, but uh, but I mean, uh, turning um, a satellite measurement, which has got um, the intensity of uh, the amount of energy at different wavelengths of light, turning that into a profile of temperature as a function of height in the atmosphere is quite a, a complicated process and one which will introduce some errors. But yeah, but so this is important then because the atmosphere is chaotic. Um, so a very small uh, change in the starting condition could lead to a very different result after some number of days. Thinking about what Hannah just said, model uncertainty, the thing that arises from aggregating all these molecules together and treating a five by five area of land as though it's a single point, this is not the only thing that we need to take into consideration when we're trying to judge the precision of our outcome. We also need to account for in initial condition uncertainty. So we, we can't always tell how the initial conditions exist in even in real life we can't always measure them with total certainty and there are atmospheric conditions that are inherently unpredictable just as there are others whose progressions are easy to anticipate so what would that be so i'll let hannah tell you here in europe uh, we get these things called um, blocks that sit over kind of Scandinavia, and then what they do is deflect all the storms uh, off of away from the UK. But I mean, these are very persistent systems, so they could sit in place for uh, well over a week. So once you've got one of those in place, you can actually say with a great deal of certainty out for a few days that it's going to be quite calm. But then once it's get, getting to the stage it's about to break up, it can become very difficult to say if it's going to break up tomorrow or in two days or four days. And so then your sharpness would necessarily kind of uh, be lost, I suppose. Your, your probabilistic forecast would be much broader, and it's just because we, we can't tell given what we know. Okay, so whether conditions are predictable or not, a probabilistic forecast necessarily plays out many starting scenarios many times in order to see what the possible set of outcomes looks like within the time frame of interest. So this technique that you have here for weather forecasting, what did you call it? Stochastic parameterization schemes? That's this way of um, testing all the possible scenarios that can happen. And I gather that that's becoming the common way for forecasting weather. Is that because it's giving you a better forecast? Yeah, actually it is. So as it turns out, when you use probabilistic forecasting, so doing that today in 2016, we get seven-day forecasts that are about as good as three-day forecasts were 20 years ago. Wow, that's, that's a good gain. Yeah, in a generation, you've definitely improved your ability to determine reasonably well what the weather is going to be in a shorter time frame. But how weather forecasters use them is kind of a different story. The reliance on probabilistic forecasting is actually just painting part of the picture. And weather forecasters actually partner these probabilistic forecasts with another tool in order to come to a conclusion as to what they're going to truly predict the weather to be. So um, the model that I work with uh, is, is run by a center in Reading. 
So they produce two different forecasts. So they produce a probabilistic forecast. Um, and in that uh, forecast, the boxes are about 30 kilometers by 30 kilometers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also produce uh, what they, they call their high resolution forecast, which has then got a 16 kilometer box by 16 kilometers. So I think they, they always use them in combination. You can look at the, the ensemble forecast to give you information about how certain you are. But then I think especially for the first few days, they would think that the high resolution forecast is, is really quite accurate. By the way, I, I asked Hannah how many times we need to run the model on different starting conditions to get a reasonable distribution on which we can run some probabilistic modeling. So that would be as many as you can afford, I think. So I, it's always a compromise. Um, so nowadays you're looking at some number of tens, so maybe 30 to 50 uh, forecasts. Um, and that will give you a, a reasonable estimate as to what the kind of the average, the mean will be and what the standard deviation. And then maybe you might be able to pick up some kind of bimodality. Hannah brings up a really interesting point here when she's talking about like getting back maybe some kind of strange looking weather predictions. Like she brings up this idea of bimodality when you have a weather prediction that has like two kind of clumps of likelihood that could happen. And the, the like big statistical question here is what, how do you interpret data like that? So how do you, how do you interpret weather predictions that appear to be kind of all over the place, right? You can imagine that if your prediction gives you back a pretty concise set of information, it's going to be easier to interpret the results, right? Like Annie, you mentioned at the top of the show that it's like a two-part question, building the model to get the results and then actually interpreting the results. And if and if all of your results kind of coalesce around a single outcome, like over and over and over again, you get a similar similarly predicted outcome, it would be very easy to say, well, surely no matter what happens today, we can expect that particular outcome in three days. But it's probably very unlikely that that's what's really happening. So this brings us to kind of a cool idea in statistics, which is that when you're in a situation like this where you have two sets of statistical analyses that you get back, like let's say we both ran weather models and got back two different predictions that we need to compare, we're almost doing an analysis of our statistical analysis at that point. And this is something called meta-analysis, which is a super hot topic in statistics and luckily a topic that I found an expert to talk to about. My name is Frank D'Amico. I am a biostatistician for Duquesne University and I've been here for 35 years. Do you want to talk about the weather? I do. We can can go right there. (laughs) All right. So I should mention that in his spare time, Frank is also a hobby airplane pilot. So understanding weather patterns is like kind of a life and death thing for him. So I felt like he was the right guy to come to to talk about the importance <laughs> in understanding statistics and understanding the weather. He's not just he, pushing numbers around on a page. No, he he really means it. And um, in case you're wondering, I've never been in his airplane before. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, is um, you know, it means nothing. <laughs> So Frank lives about 30 miles away from where I live here in Pittsburgh. So I wanted to talk to him about this idea of he and I creating different 
weather models and comparing our predictions. So kind of inspired by the same idea of the weather models that Hannah Christensen was talking about, I said, suppose he and I both set up weather stations on our roofs and gather weather data for, you know, some period of time and both crank out weather predictions for our local area. So we're 30 miles apart. Um, and so we're, we're in the same, like, air skyscraper. But you have two different machines that you're running these numbers through. You've got a clever model and he's got a clever model. Exactly. And we both, we're just to make ourselves as different as possible. We both have like weather stations where we're collecting our humidity and air pressure. And so all that. the like initial conditions are also slightly different for each of you. Exactly. Exactly. So these are like totally different setups. Nevertheless, we're in the same air column. So we would want to compare our predictions and then maybe give everyone in our little 30 mile radius our concise two man here's what's going to happen exactly because certainly two comparing two predictions is going to give you a more kind of informative answer than just taking the one right so let me just back up when you say comparing two predictions like the actual outcome that each of you is comparing is not a single number it's actually like a distribution, right? Right, right. So imagine imagine we're trying to measure something like, take something simple, like what's the temperature going to be in two days? Let's make it even easier. Say what's the temperature going to be tomorrow? Okay. Right, and supposing we both have models that somehow crank out that as output, we would do something like run our models as many times as we can, like Hannah said, right? Let's say I run my model 50 times, and this 50 times is going to give me some nice looking distribution to what the temperature should be. And Frank doing it independently is going to come up with his own distribution. So if I run my model and my model's good, do you have some guess as to what this uh, distribution should look like? Well, you know, the like safe guess for everything statistical is that it looks like a bell curve. <laughs> Right. That's correct. I should get back a bell curve. If I have a if I have a well-designed model and there's some like consistency with me the way that I'm running my iterations, I would expect that I would get back some kind of bell curve. We have strong theorems that say that the distribution of those changes will approximate some sort of symmetric curve. That's it. And that's what we teach in general statistics. Kids don't get it. It's because we teach it very, very badly. <laughs> so what do you know about bell curves? Okay, so in like a canonical bell curve, a perfect bell curve, the highest point. So so first of all, it looks like a bell, right? Like kind of like a nice, <laughs> a nice hill that right. tapers off on each side and has a high point in the middle. And in an idealized version, the highest point is your average of all of your results and would probably, in this case, be what your official prediction is. But, you know, because the bell curve tapers off on each side, we have some understanding of the variability around that average that results from the number of trials that you took, right? Exactly. So for the purposes of this discussion, we are going to assume that we have one of these nice idealized bell curves. And you're exactly correct. The highest point on the bell curve is telling me what the average 
value is that I would expect. So the highest point on the bell curve in my prediction is telling me what I think the temperature should be tomorrow. And Frank's highest point is telling him what he thinks the temperature should be tomorrow. But also the the width of the bell, if you think about like how wide the bell gets as it goes down, mm -hmm. this is telling me how much, I think you said this word already, but how much variance I have. So maybe I have predictions, maybe my, my average is telling me that it's going to be about 70 degrees, but maybe some some runs of my model gave me stuff as high as 100 and other things gave me, you know, outputs perhaps as low as, uh, you know, 40, right? That would be a pretty bad model, but maybe I have a big spread like that. And maybe Frank's was a little bit better. Frank's model maybe told him it was going to be 65 degrees and his spread was only as high as 70 and as low as 60. So his bell would be almost as tall as mine, but it would be much narrower. And so this, like, I can imagine why this is a tricky question, right? Because in some ways I want to say, like, well, if Frank had less variance in his model, maybe we should trust his more. But yet you both applied models to the same set of essentially similar weather data. Why should we trust his more than yours? And what do we do about these two models, right? Right. And, and since we arrived at different averages, uh, my model isn't telling us nothing. Right, So to only take Frank's and to discard mine would be to say that somehow mine has no relevant information to offer us, which certainly isn't the case. So in the best case scenario, you want some way to kind of impose them upon each other right, and come up with some an aggregate of the two models. Does that make sense? Totally. But I suspect that the easy way of going about that is probably not the correct way of going about that. <laughs> this, is, this is not Occam's razor here. <laughs> correct. Correct. You... You kind of guessed it. Well, okay, no, I should back it up a little bit. Sometimes it's really easy. So if we're in the situation that the curves are practically identical, so if the means are different, but the bases of the curve are almost the same, like if I can almost slide them on top of each other, then they're really easy to compare. Does this make sense? So if, they, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. if they're like kind of mirror images, slide translations of each other, then they're really easy to compare. And Frank has a pretty nice solution to a problem like this. We're in still interested in, in wondering, are the two numbers that we're looking at different? So if the spreads that we both have independently achieved, if, if they're the same, you know, that's why I said, there's no problem. We can do that. We, we absolutely can do that. That problem has been solved. We know this. This is in general stat one. The solution is easy. It's been around for 100 years. Okay, This one is the common one. So so my long, so long as my curves can be shifted to sit on top of each other and look the same, it's an easy question to answer. Yes. To average yes. your stuff and my stuff together. Yeah, okay. yeah. The theory. So we have strong theory of how to actually test the difference in the locations. Okay. When, the, when, when both of the groups have similar spreads. Right. So if this was you and me coming in with our weather predictions, and this was my spread here somehow suggesting a 70% chance, and yours here is suggesting, a, what did we say, 80% chance? Whatever. Then we, there's actually a way to compare this and arrive at a number that we can tell people. Like yeah, say, Frank we and I have come together and we've decided that we, there's... That's right. Are we, so are we in agreement? Yes or no? And then we can actually put a probability of how accurate our differences are. You know? That's pretty strong. 
That's good. In that particular case. But now let's get down what? to... <laughs> this <laughs> is a very beautiful case. Now yeah. things can get much uglier. Things get bad, okay? But where things get really tricky is when our two bell curves look completely different. So this is like, imagine the scenario that I described in the beginning, where not only is my bell curve much taller than Frank's, but the shape that they make are totally distinct. So Frank's is like a, kind of short and narrow, and mine's really tall and wide. And, you know, his is like a narrow kind of peak and mine's more like a big hulking <laughs> thing, right? There's no way that I'm going to slide my curve over his and match them up. They're just not the same shape. I should mention that the difference in the way that these curves look mean that we have not only a different average to our distribution, but we have a different variance. So you can't even agree on like, like basically your models not only tell you different outcomes, but also are more or less kind of tightly centered around those outcomes. And it's hard to say whether one outcome with less variation is more reliable than another outcome with more variation because they're simply so different. Exactly. So how do we compare two distributions like this? We say, well, both curves are still normal. They just have different variabilities. And so then the question comes, well, how do you compare the two centers when the variabilities are so different? And, and I hate to tell you, that, that is what is known as the Barron's fisher problem. And this has a solution? No. No? No. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> the no. Barron's fisher problem. So this is a very famous open problem in statistics. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I first heard about it. We don't hear, students, you know, young people don't hear about this, but I heard about it 40 years, 35, 40 years ago when I was in grad school, you know, but the problem is 85, 95 years old. So this, to me, seems totally crazy that just by changing the spread of your distribution, so just from going from a situation where they have, like, an equal spread to suddenly making them have different variance, you go from an easy problem that is covered in an intro stats course to one of the biggest open problems in statistics. And it seems like, to me, what you're doing is so minor. And you're dealing with two bell curves here, right? It's not even like we're throwing a Poisson curve in the distribution. <laughs> right, right. And as far as like describing practically what's going on in each situation, it's still... You can, you can intuitively completely interpret what's going on, but there's no actual mathematical way to compare these two things. Well, I shouldn't say no, because there has been some progress in special cases. And Frank explained to me that already when Barons and Fisher proposed this problem, they were able to come up with a, kind of a partial solution that they called a non-parametric solution. I'll let Frank explain that. Did they have a solution to this problem? Yes. But their solution is what we call today non-parametric. And that what that means is they take the data and they actually disguised it. So they made it, instead of calling it new continuous, they actually made it what's called ordinal. 
They said, look, these are the larger numbers, these are the smaller numbers, and they changed the actual scale of measurement to something they called ranks. So they, they basically ranked all the data from low to high, et cetera, et cetera, and then they developed the probability distribution. That isn't the exact question. The question is still about the centers, the means. Every year, somebody for their PhD thesis comes up with a new, <laughs> a new solution to the Barron's Fisher, but but it's still actually what it is is under certain conditions, we get an approximate yeah. to the answer. Yeah. So if you are looking for a topic for your PhD dissertation in statistics, I guess look no further. Yeah. You know, so as somebody who like deals with kind of creating stories around statistics and talking about data for non-expert audiences, I have to say that this is like a little bit scary to me because, you know, you're asking a question about the means of these two distributions. And that's what people talk about, right? Means of things, the averages of things. But really, in this case, it's the variance which doesn't get a lot of airtime, that's playing it's, the major it, role, right? I know. It's totally true. It's totally true. The variance is like, it's everything, right? Yeah. I mean, that's really what's determining not only how difficult it is to solve this open problem, but, you know, like the actual outcome that we can rely upon here. Right, right. I agree. And incidentally, so does Frank. Statistical science is about the study of variation. Even though we teach students and we, we constantly talk about the difference in means or medians or percentiles, it really is all about the variance. In medicine, it's all about variability. And it's the variance that makes things interesting without it. I mean, we look outside, you know, if it were completely constant, you know, every time, every time we looked at there, then there would be no variability and we wouldn't need predictions. We would know. So really, variety is the spice of life and the spice of statistics. <laughs> oh, that was bad. Oh, man. Oh. We started with small talk about the weather and finishing with platitudes. I'm not expecting more of us. I know. I know. I am horrified by myself. <laughs> I'll allow you to keep going, though, No, but I, I, should, I should mention, um, you kind of paint this picture of people running around kind of la-di-da talking about statistics and, and means as though the means are the important things when really this variance stuff is like a wrecking ball in the background. And Frank and I actually had a nice conversation about the kind of darker side of the Barron's Fisher problem and how it pops up a lot in meta-analysis of biomedical research. No. <laughs> oh, I know. So apparently it's a really common thing for biomedical researchers to want to compare studies, right? So if you have two kind of randomized trials or whatever, studies that show up in two separate papers, it's reasonable that you would want to compare the studies and then come up with some new finding that you can publish or talk about and like draw a conclusion based on the two. Yeah, and you might imagine that like more studies equals more information equals better understanding. Wrong. <laughs> So you and I, you and I now, we know that comparing distributions is super risky business, but apparently people keep doing it with total and utter disregard for Barron's Fisher. So to wit, the day that I talked with Frank about Barron's Fisher, he 
showed up in my office and that morning someone had emailed him two different papers. So there were two papers for medical journals discussing that there was some correlation between pregnant women taking vitamin D and a reduced rate of asthma in babies. So there were two papers that did some kind of trial that somehow supported that taking vitamin D has a positive effect. Mm -hmm. And they took these two papers and these boneheads compared the analyses in the two papers and cranked out a third analysis that claimed there was no correlation between vitamin D and asthma. So like two, two, two correlations equal no correlation. Equals no correlation. Right. And this is what happens if you abuse Barron's Fisher. Because a lot of this statistical analysis is just done by running computer programs and whatever kind of statistical software you use. And statistical software isn't calibrated to deal with Barron's Fisher. And it'll just kind of steamroll over it. And it will allow you to compare distributions without paying attention to this subtlety. And Frank says this happens all the time. And it's super duper dangerous in biomedical research because this is now, you know, people's healthcare decisions are being made based on this stuff. And it's like totally nutty. So um, Frank, I, I said, should kind of become the Barron's Fisher police. I think he should, he should be, just a, be on the lookout for bad applications of or bad meta analyses. Yeah, yeah. And with a, you know, kind of a bullhorn or something stopping people. <laughs> but thankfully, you and I are only talking about the weather today. And nothing bad has ever happened there. <laughs> oh, I swear there was the moment I said that there was just a bolt of lightning and a clap of thunder. This is not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> right outside my window. Well, I think that we should just wrap it up then. So I think that's that's what we have for you today. But this has been really fun. Yeah, it's fun to talk to people about the weather and, when you're not just making small talk on the elevator, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think it's even fun to make small talk about weather. It's it's not the worst thing, right? It's a nice way to, I guess, be friendly. Yeah, you know what? It's Sometimes it's the polite thing to do. And, like, I have such a – this is this is for another podcast, perhaps. But I have a – I'm on a crusade for politeness in this world. People – there are just a lot of people bumping around. Like, all these molecules in the atmosphere, there are just, like, people <laughs> bumping around next to each other on this planet. You might as well be polite. You might as well just – Say, hey, nice day out there when you get on the elevator in the morning. What's it going to cost you? Yeah, good. Speaking of being polite, let's thank people. <laughs> good idea. Good idea. So I'd like to start. Thank you, Hannah Christensen, for your great insights and wonderful conversation and for explaining to me what exactly stochastic parametrization schemes are. And thank you to Frank D'Amico for taking the time to teach me about the dangerous... Barron's Fisher problem and the importance of Barron's Fisher whistleblowers <laughs> in the world of meta-analysis. And thank you, as always, to our wonderful executive producer, Samuel Hansen. You can check him, his podcast, Relatively Prime, and a bunch of other podcasts that he produces out on his website, acmescience.com. And if you want to know more about anything that we said today... You can probably find it on our website, theotherhalf.acmescience.com. Okay, so enjoy that nice day out there. I heard it's supposed to be in the 70s tomorrow. <laughs> I'll bet those cherry blossoms are really 
popping off. <laughs> 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 Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>